And for our scripture reading, we'll turn once again to 1 Peter chapter 3. I would like to resume the series we've been doing through 1 Peter. And this fits well with the post-communion service. So we'll read 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll read the first 12 verses. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion one for another. A love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This far, uh, the scripture reading, and our focus this morning, or sorry, this afternoon, is specifically on verse 8. And as we reflect back on the confession that we gave this morning at the Lord's Supper, it should also be in our mind and heart to ask, you know, how does the Lord expect us to live in this world? Or how can we see God's work and grace in our life, the evidence of His Spirit working in us? In, in verse 9, Peter says, knowing that you were called to this, See, along with the feast, Josiah this morning called the people to diligently serve the Lord, to stand in agreement to the Word, and it says that all the days of Josiah, the people did so willingly. They did not depart from following the Lord, and yet Josiah could not change the hearts of his people. He could lead them, he could encourage them, He could provide for them. He could 
bring him together at the feast. But when he died, the people again fell away. He could not change the hearts. But here Christ, the King of kings, calls us to diligently serve Him. And what is more is that He not only calls us to serve Him, but He also equips and enables us to do so. That's what God calls us to. It's not just a calling of our own to do what we can in our own strength, but He gives what He commands. He gives that desire and that ability. And also, if you read in Romans 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. And it goes on to say, Moreover, whom He predestinated, those He called and those He called, He also justified, and whom He justified them, He also glorified. And so here we see that God uses everything in our life for that purpose, to conform us to the image of His Son, to Christ. And then the day will come when that glorification will be complete, and we will be with the Lord. And uh, Psalm 17 says in verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And John, 1 John 3, verse 2 also says that when we see Him, we shall be like Him, glorified, conformed to His image perfectly. Then you will be like Christ. Then the disciple will be like His Master. Then the image bearer will resemble that image perfectly. To this you are called. But we know that in this life we're not there yet. And that transformation takes place in this life. It begins at the moment of regeneration when our hearts are turned from dead to life. And then you are being conformed to the image of Christ day by day. Then you begin to resemble Christ more and more in that knowledge, in that righteousness, that adherence to His law, in that holiness, that separation from sin. And what we wish to consider this afternoon is the attitude that we have in us, that our attitude begins to reveal that Christ is being formed in us. And so our theme is called to a Christ-like attitude. And specifically verse 8 we'll focus on today. And so our attitude is being conformed. Now in the English uh, translations they add the verb be to be all of you be of one mind, and yet they are all adjectives, descriptors of who a person is. So you could really look at it two ways. In one, we're called to be this. In another sense, every believer is this. This describes the believer who is being transformed by God. This will be in your heart. And so we read again verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Here, Peter begins to describe that conformity to the character or to the attitude of Christ. And this is what we're called to have in this world. Because when a person is born again, 
The Spirit of Christ lives in you. The same Spirit that was in Christ. And that the fruit of these spirits become, of the Spirit becomes manifest. And so it is in that way that He calls and forms us in that. And He says at the beginning of verse 8, Finally, all of you. This is every Christian, young and old, a new believer or a, one who has been a believer for his whole life. Every one of you is called to this. No one can say that doesn't pertain to me. Second Timothy 2 also says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You are called to flee all unrighteousness, all sin, and to walk as Christ walked. And that begins in the attitude. And the first aspect that Peter brings out here is the, the, the aspect of unity. Be of one mind. Unity, so that there's a harmony between one another. Jesus said in John 10, My Father and I are one. The Trinity, there's a unity, there's a oneness, there's a perfection there. But He also said that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He said there will be one flock and one shepherd. That one flock made out of sheep from all over the world, from every nation. And there's a unity in that flock because they all follow one shepherd. People who follow different shepherds don't belong to this flock. People who stray and never come back don't belong to this shepherd. But this one flock has one shepherd. And they've all entered through the one door, Christ. There's only one way into that flock. And they're all fed in the same pastures of His Word. They're all given the same food and drink in Christ. And they all know the same shepherd's voice. And when He calls, they come. And they're all individually cared for by the same shepherd. They're all secure under this one shepherd, there's a unity in the safety and the security that they experience. They're all protected by Him. Christ said, no one shall be able to snatch them out of My hand. There's a unity in the equality of every sheep. If you think of how they all got there, they're all bought with the same price, with the same blood. They all belong equally to the same Master. And they all receive the gift of eternal life. There's a unity. And yet, each sheep is distinct, is unique. And so there's a unity and diversity. Differences do exist, but it must not cause division in the one flock. Even... Paul says in Philippians 3, if in anything you think otherwise, God will, re will reveal this even to you. That clarity, that unity comes as we draw near to the shepherd as he leads us in the pastures of his word. But there is a variety of gifts and, and talents and, and opinions, but none of this must divide. It's all for the benefit of the flock, for the building up of the church. 
This morning we heard of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers, and they all, they all have different gifts, different stations in life, different talents, different uses, and yet they all work together, they all serve together for the one purpose of God's church. And so there must be a unity between us to walk as one flock, following one shepherd. Philippians 2 verse 2, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, and that is the mind of Christ. And we strive for that unity, recognizing first that we belong to Christ, that we belong to Him by grace and no merit of ourselves. And then if it is by grace, by His blood, then there's nothing to boast of our place in there. But we are one in Christ. And so that Romans 15 says that with one mind and with one mouth glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But further, he says, having compassion for one another. Having compassion or sympathy when there's unity, there's also a sharing in the feelings, especially the sorrows, the griefs, and the anxieties that, uh, that we have. Christ also is known as our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4 says, we do not, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can go to Him because He can sympathize with what we are going through. And in compassion, you are able to suffer along with the person who is undergoing a trial. You're able to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. This is what we are called to to be of the same mind toward one another. Because one flock is also compared to being one body in 1 Corinthians 12, that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If you have your finger, even your smallest finger or your smallest toe, if it's hurt, the rest of your body suffers along with it. And so not one lamb of this flock can go missing without being noticed. Not one soul can be left unattended. Christ even goes after that one sheep that strays. Christ demonstrated this sympathy when He wept when Lazarus died. You can also see Jesus as He's walking down the road, and He, he met this funeral procession coming out of the, the city, and this widow was carrying the remains of her only son to the grave. And he had compassion on her. And he stopped, and he put his hand on that coffin, and then he also raised that boy from the dead. Now, we can't heal the sick or bring the dead to life, but we can sympathize with one another. And we can place ourselves in their shoes to see what they're going through. We can live along with them and help them as we can. Christ had compassion on the multitudes. He visited the sick, the sick mother of Peter, 
the daughter of Jairus. He comforted a woman with the sickness. And Christ, even today, shows sympathy to you. He knows your trials, your questions, your fears, your doubts, your angers, your weakness, your temptations, your sins. And he's there to comfort, to guide his sheep. You belong to that one flock to give grace. Always there. He's also there to help and to teach those who are not yet in Christ. For he draws them to himself. And so we're called to have compassion on one another as Christ, being conformed to his image. Love as brothers, Peter says. Love as brothers, or loving the brethren, the fellow believers, the one flock under Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 22 says, have sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. That's how Christ loved. There's a genuine love in the children of God to brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is a That is an evidence of Christ's work in you. 1 John 3, 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Is this found in our hearts? And Christ demonstrated this in Luke 22 when he said that with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He demonstrated that love the most in the darkest hour when he approached his own death, when he would lay down his life for his friends. And in John 13, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that was again displayed for us at the Lord's Supper this morning as we remembered his death. That he loved his own unto death. And now after his death, after the Lord's Supper's feast, Christ still loves his own and those whom he has bought with his own blood. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called that with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, forbearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you're called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Conform to Christ in the attitude of love, particularly for fellow believers, for the one flock for whom Christ died. And it's evident 
in the hearts of God's people, because Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What I'm saying here should be so apparent to you because God is teaching it to you. And yet Paul goes on to say, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. The evidence is there that they love the other brethren. But he says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. We need to aspire after this in our life that you aspire to lead a quiet life, he says, to mind your own business, to work your own, with your own hands as we commanded you, but that you may work, walk properly toward those who are outside and you may lack nothing. He says we need to strive to increase in that love and that unity for the church of Christ. And he goes on to say, be tender-hearted, compassionate. King James translated as pitiful. There's a, there's a pity that goes out towards others from the bottom of your heart, from the depths of your bowels is the figurative language used, a sincere tenderness to others in their circumstances, being deeply moved with pity, for those who are affected by something. The Lord Jesus, when he saw the multitudes coming to him, said he was moved with compassion, and he healed to the sick. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw their need for their soul and for their body, people who needed the tender care. And this is the God who we serve, a tender God, a compassionate God, a Father who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And this tenderness is formed in you who are in Christ. A tender compassion, even as God for Christ's sake had compassion on you when you were still in your sins. And how much more is that tenderness now when you are in Christ. But then, Peter says, be courteous. Now, that means to be humble-minded, the humility, that meekness and gentleness of hearts that Moses had. And we read earlier there in, in verse 4 that we're called to the, that incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And the Lord Jesus Himself said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest to your souls. And again, I'd like to remind us of where, what context Peter is speaking this in. It's a, in the context of submission to those in authority, and specifically those who abuse their authorities, that we are to have humility, meekness, gentleness. And later Peter will say in chapter 5, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you be submissive one to another and be clothed 
in humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble because humility is the fruit of His Spirit. We read in verse 12 that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He loves you for the sake of Christ alone. He is pleased with his people because he sees in them his, the righteousness of Christ. He sees in them the, the humility being formed, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, humility is the fruit of that conformity to Christ. But if there's no humility, if there's no fruit, if there's no evidence of Christ's likeness, then the face of the Lord is against those who continue to do evil, against those who are not covered in His blood, as we heard this morning. And so he says, be clothed in humility. Our lives should be a picture And the Lord Jesus gave us a picture. On the night that he was betrayed, he took that towel that no one else in the house was humble enough to take. And he wrapped that towel around his own waist. And he kneeled down in front of his disciples and took their dirty feet. And he washed them. Humility. Demonstrating a selfless attitude, selfless service, willing to take the least willing to take the lowest place, even though he was the Son of God. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man. He humbled himself, and became obedient unto to the point of death, even to the death on the cross, that most despised and accursed death. Christ humbled himself for you, and Christ forms that humility in you. But that humility is also what brings us joy. I think part of the reason we don't like humility is we think it brings us to a place of depression and dejection and to be run over by everything. But this is where there is joy. Because though we do not deserve the least of God's mercy, this is where God gives grace. Where God, for Christ's sake, freely gives all things. And that is where there is joy forevermore. And this is where God even desires, as He did this morning, to meet with his children at the table of the Lord to feed their souls with good things. To this you were called, and to this you are being formed and conformed to the image of Christ. Call to be conformed now, so that when you see him in glory, you shall be like him, be made like him forever and reflect His image perfectly forever, and never to lack in any of these graces. To this you are called. Is this where we find our attitude being conformed to? Is this 
the desire of her heart, even after being able to partake of the Lord's table, confessing again that He is our Lord, doing it in remembrance of Him as the only atonement for all our sin. As we leave again, is our only hope and our only desire found in Christ. Amen.